0: You ready?
1: I was born ready. I'm a podcast, License to Talk. It's as good a time to ask as any, I suppose. Are we family or what?
2: You want some sexy, you want to laugh. License to Talk. (laughs) License to Talk is brought to you by. First in Buffalo, 391 Abbott Road. Fireman owned and operated. Get your custom gear at First in Buffalo. Goodspeed Beverage Center. Family owned and operated, 2202 Seneca Street. Get those splits that you could chug over there? Ice cold beverages at Goodspeed Beverage Center. Bob's Barbershop, 2098 Seneca Street. You gotta call them to get an appointment. 207-9210 to get your appointment at Bob's Barbershop. Bottle Rocket Beer Reserved. Bottle Rocket Beer Reserved, 2182 Seneca Street. The Rocket is stocked and ready to rock. They got outside seating, check them out, Bottle Rocket. You gotta see the action there at Seneca Street. Mr. Submarines, the best ham sub in South Buffalo is at 1977 South Park Avenue. Dog Ears Bookstore. 688 Abbott Road. Don't get your coffee from Timmy when you can get it from Tommy. And don't forget our guys over there at Final Vibes Buffalo, making the License to Talk stickers. Check them out on Instagram, Final Vibes Buffalo. All right, episode 51. One of the greatest actors of our time, Mr. Andy Garcia. How are you, Andy? Hey,
0: thank you. That's very... Unexpected, but much appreciated introduction.
2: And a lot of people will wonder what our connection is to Andy. Well, he's friends with our the very talented Louis Mistello. You've worked with him on some projects. How did you guys become friends? I met him, I met Lou for the first time in a,
0: in a reading of a screenplay that our mutual friend David Caruso put together back in the, I would say the early 80s, uh, mid 80s, something like that. And uh, I met him then, and then shortly thereafter, I got an opportunity to produce my own my first film. That was written and directed by Richard Wenk uh, about a ticket scalper. It was. It started the, the original title was The Scalper, but then uh, once we sold it, it was an independent film with Andy McDowell and Richard Bradford and and Lou and Patrick Breen and Fred Asparagus, a bunch of guys uh Ponita nichols uh chris lemon and lou played one of the my scalper buddies in it and uh, when we were putting the movie together i had remembered lou from that reading and i said oh i got a guy who lives in new york who would be great as one of the guys you know and i called him and he, we jumped in and that was when we got to know each other obviously you know more intensely because we you know, when you work on a film set, it's kind of like going to war. You know, you're, you're there every day for a per, you know concentrated period of time, but you really rely on each other for you know support and and uh, creative uh, stimulus. And then later on, we worked again on City Island, and then I was I was uh, got an opportunity to fulfill this idea I had to adapt the movie Key Largo for uh, for the stage. And I I pitched the idea to the Geffen Playhouse here in L.A., and they immediately bit. And uh, myself and Jeffrey Hatcher, the writer, uh, we adapted this play with some new ideas for the, I mean, the the movie first, uh, took the original screenplay of the film and the original play is based on and kind of concocted a new new element, per se, using some new ideas, but, you know, a lot of the other ones. And there was a part in there called Curly, which is... uh, uh, Johnny Rocco's sort of right hand uh, in the movie Johnny Rocco's played by Edward G. Robinson, which is the part I ended up playing in the play, and uh, his right hand man, his name was Curly, a, uh, played by a great actor named T- Tomas Gomez, and and immediately, when I when I saw the movie, I said, Lou, you know, <laughs> Lou's the guy for that part, and I sent it to Lou, and he was excited and eager to do a play again, and uh, we spent the entire fall, you know, rehearsing and, and uh, performing together. So it was great to, again, spend that sort of intense uh, creative time with with Lou. And, uh, and I I love, I love the man. He's so talented. He's one of my favorite actors really.
1: Yeah. He fascinates us, you know, just being from the same neighborhood and, you know, knowing how people like react when you're trying to do something different, like the podcast or Louie with acting You know, the people react to us They're like, what are you doing? You know, and Lou probably got a lot of that and still stuck it out. You know,
0: that's right. Well, I, you know, I'm here to talk to you guys because any friend of Lou's is a friend of mine. Oh, thanks, Andy.
2: Well, you talk about City Island. It comes natural to him. He plays a bartender. He's a Hall of Fame bartender here in Buffalo. I don't know if you knew that. I know. (laughs) I'm sure he brings it up. No, I know. I know that
0: whenever the, the other day I showed him, uh, we're actually myself and my son-in-law Steve Rello, who was also in the play with us, played the other gangster in my group, Toots. Uh we uh we've been fiddling around with his play, bartenders, and we're, you know, trying to, in the process of kind of seeing how we can turn that into a, a screenplay, you know?
1: Oh wow. Uh, so right. It's a, it's
0: a it's an incredible piece of writing uh that Lou that Lou did. And I knew that about his past, so every time there's a bartender in the movies, he always wants to play the bartender. You know, <laughs> there, are, there are better parts, but he always <laughs> wants to play the bartender. And I sent him a thing that I wrote about. It was kind of a film noir detective thing. And and I said, you know, Lou, there's a, there's a great part in there, of the corner. Maybe you can play the corner or play this guy or that guy. He goes, yeah, but there's that bartender role.
1: <laughs> that is- we
0: can do some stuff with that. We can enhance it. I said, okay, yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. City Island was was a, a great film. And, you know, y- y- you were playing an actor, you know. W- was that your idea for Brando to be in that? Or was that, like, written yes, to it? Yes, yes. Yes, no. The original,
0: the writer-director,
1: Raymond DeFellita, wrote a
0: beautiful screenplay. Uh, and as you remember in the movie, this character was obsessed with uh, the dream of being an actor, and he was a prison guard. But in his screenplay, he had, when you first met him at... at uh, at the uh, prison in his little office, he had all these posters because it was a secret from his wife, you know, but at, at his prison guard office, he had all these posters of, you know, Scorsese movies, Coppola, you know, Godfather, Mean Streets, you know, all these movies. And I said to Ray, you know, Ray, I thought I said, I'm th- the, the piece is incredible, but I think there's one thing that I think we should discuss is that first of all, I don't think he would have any posters up of what his secret desire is, because if you put if you put a poster up saying in your in your prison guard office saying I want to be an actor, basically, there you will be the laughing stock of the prison, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: So it's best to keep it quiet that he reads. And I said I think it's di- diluted if you have many heroes, you know, many inspirations. And I think it should just be one guy that he is, a, you know. And they, and they said, it's got to be Brando, you know? And, and so he's reading the book on Brando. I said, he's got a whole, the VHS of Brando that we can discover in the garage. And then he says, And I said, when he goes to this audition, he's so nervous and he studied Brando so much that the only thing he can do in this audition, his first audition is Without even knowing he's doing it, he starts doing an impersonation of, uh, of Marlon Brando. <laughs> That's great, and 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 a, and a bad one at that. You know? And 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 Raymond looked at me and said, "What? What are you talking about?" And I said to him, "You know, I said, yeah, he go to the audition and he's got to, you know, do it, and then he starts doing his, you know, like, <laughs> and he starts doing the whole Brando thing, you know, and the, and the casting directors will just look at him saying." What the hell are you doing here? Are you doing an impersonation of Marlon Brando? And he goes, <laughs> no, 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 no. But anyway, so that whole idea, I did it for him. And he's, I remember Raymond said, I don't know if that's going to work. And I said, Ray, trust me, it's going to work. It was you know? spot on. It
1: was great. Yeah.
0: And so we did it. We, you know, we made some adjustment in the script. And then the curious thing was that I called, uh, my dear friend, Alan Arkin and I told him we were doing this movie and if would he come in and do just one day's work as the, as the, uh, my acting teacher.
1: Oh yeah. Right. And,
0: and, and then he re- he read the script and, you know, cause he's a dear friend. He said, he said, normally I wouldn't do this, but I want people to see you in this movie. <sighs> and uh, of course, when Alan, you know, says that to you, it's like, you know, God, the yeah. acting God saying he likes your work. So, I. Uh, to me, Alan Arkin is one of the most sublime actors in the history of the work, you know, really. I really feel like that. Yeah, he, and he talks, so he went in, he he talked about, to complete the Brando thing, he came in and he said, you know, it's not that I want more lines, but I have an idea that I wrote something for, you know, my characters. He had like a speech, you know, at the acting class. And 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 we and he said, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'll write whatever you want, you know. You're Alan Arkin, you, you're a writer yourself and a director. So what he did is he wrote, he embellished this monologue where he, in the acting class, dismantles the Brando myth.
1: Right, the pauses.
0: <laughs> yeah, the pauses. So it was, you know, from a storytelling point of view, he was spot on because here I am trying to learn how to act, and my acting teacher is dismantling the myth and the talents of the man that I emulate. So it's more confusing for the protagonist. Then, to complete the story, one day I came up to Raymond, the director. I said, Ray, wouldn't it be funny if my Alan, my acting teacher, when I get in this long line, if you remember, there was this long line to audition went around the block three times, mm-hmm. you know, like three blocks. What if halfway through as I'm going to the end of the line, I see my acting teacher in line, <laughs> which further, further, you know, further decreases my chances of getting a part in this movie you know, because now my acting teacher's auditioning for my part. <laughs> I got nowhere to go. And he said, Oh, that's hilarious. You think Alan would do it? And I said, well, let me call him. And, uh, so I, I called him and I said, Alan, I have an idea. Uh, it, but it would entail for you to be in New York two days instead of just one day. Cause he was living, I think in Nova Scotia at the time. And, uh, and, but no pressure, but I just thought I shared it because you might dig it. And so I told him the story that he would be, I said, and you would be in the acting line as I'm coming across. And without missing a beat, Alan went, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and that was it. He came, he, 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 he came in and did that little bit also for us. It was great. It's great. He, I love him and in like Gross said, Point
1: Blank. He was awesome. What's that? In Gross Point Blank is the, uh, He's, he's a, a
0: therapist. Yeah, he was great. Alan is a genius. He's a really a sublime genius when it comes to the work, and and he's also a teacher. You know, he he started improvisational theater uh, in uh, Chicago. Theater director. He did everything, man. He's he's an incredible. I have so much admiration for him, you know, and uh, and we we still become we stay good friends. I call him during the pandemic. I call him, and he goes. You know, he's so funny because Alan, I need to FaceTime. Not another
2: FaceTime call. <laughs>
1: well, so, what, are, you know, we,
2: what are some yeah, of the guys ahead. that you looked up to, Andy, when you're starting out?
0: Well, that's the usual suspects, you know. I mean, when I was growing up in Miami Beach, you know, in the 60s, I came from Cuba as, as a five and a half year old. I didn't speak English, uh, but I, I was fortunate that we, we were able to leave that situation that was in Cuba. It was, you know, as you know, uh, the revolution had turned very quickly into a totalitarian Marxist regime. And we got out Uh, and we landed in Miami Beach in a predominantly Jewish American community, which was beautiful. And uh, I had a great upbringing. I mean, we all lived in a one bedroom house, six people, but, you know, uh, not even a house. It was an efficiency. But you don't know that as a kid. You're just families together. You're sleeping on like, you know, on the. On the, on the couch or in the floor, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but um, as I started growing up in the 60s, I became enamored with films, you know, and I would go with either with, with my parents or with my brother. But then as I got a little older, I'd get on the bus and go to the Surf Theater or the Lincoln Road Theater. And especially in the summers, they had those double bills for like, you know, kids' matinees. And I would go almost every day and catch all these great films, you know, that, you know, from the adventure films, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, The Crimson Pirate and and, and uh, Errol Flynn pictures, you know, and of course, The Great Escape and things like that. And the, 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 all the Bond movies with Sean Connery and stuff like so. I was obviously hooked on films and would lose myself in them, The Magnificent Seven. And that laid the foundation of my interest in doing films. Little did I know that that was... A, sort of a virus that you know that took me over and then uh, so those were the heroes that I you know the actors that I sort of Peter Sellers Oh yeah. but so it wasn't towards until the 70s when I, I took my first acting class in, in, as a senior in high school and uh, because I was mostly just involved in sports I played basketball in my life and baseball and But I got real sick in my senior year with hepatitis and mononucleosis and I couldn't play any sports. So I was kind of in limbo in my life. And I took this acting class and I was really stimulated by it. And and uh, and the teacher was very encouraging. And that kind of kept me wanting to explore it more and more in college and eventually got into an acting program in college in South Florida at Florida International University and. uh, and then at that point is that was see i graduated high school in like 72 or three and that was around the time that the godfather came out you know oh yeah godfather oh, one gosh. so when you when you see that movie and you see you know, not only brando but you know pacino and duval and uh Jimmy Khan, and all the characters that were that were in that film, they were extraordinary. All the peripheral characters. You kind of, you know, your life changes. And uh, I said, that's what I want to inspire. Uh, that's what I want to do in my life. I want to be metaphorically in that movie, you know? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And, you know, you say, that's what I want to aspire to. I don't know how, but that's my dream. So little do I know that, you know, cut to how many years later, I was, you know, had the blessing of being in one of the Godfathers, so... Incredible. So, but, so those moved, once I saw that, those guys in that movie and and Brando, you know, I started to then, and then, you know, of course, you had movies coming out, like, uh, they had that urban, and people you could identify with, you know, you had, you know, the Mean Streets and uh, a lot of Scorsese movies where you had characters like De Niro, and that are people that you could identify with, that, you know, because... Although, you know, I was Sean, you know, Sean Connery was a hero, you know, he, you know, or Errol Flynn or Steve McQueen. It's easier for me to identify with someone like a Dustin Hoffman or a, or Al Pacino or Robert De Niro, people who look more like me. Mm-hmm. You feel like they came from a similar type of background. They're, you know, they were more ethnic, you know, so you had a somehow subliminally a more you can identify with not only because of the brilliance of the work that was inspiring, but you know, the anti-hero element to it, you know, so those are the cats that, you know, that we all, uh, were turned. And then, you know, obviously you start going back and I say, I need to see all of Brando's work, you know? So you go back and try to reach for, you know, you know, on the waterfront and streetcar and all those films he did early in his life. Uh, and, you, and, you, and, uh, and Jose Ferrer and people like that, as I started really studying acting, then obviously I wanted to get as much information as possible. And, uh, and my love of film even got deeper and deeper because I was now digesting it at a more aggressive state. I was seeking out movies. I need to see Lawrence of Arabia. I need to see, you know, The Red Shoes. I need to see, you know, uh, Rules of the Game. I need to see European movies, French film. So that became a, a, an appetite for me. And in and in process, discover new actors or performances from actors that I knew that I had, that I hadn't seen yet. Andy. And then you get Richard Burton and you know and Anthony Hopkins and you know all these people from all over the
2: world, you know. And you catch your big break. A lot of people would say The Untouchables, but I think it's Eight Million Ways to Die, which is done by Hal Ashby. Yeah, is that your first break, Andy? You think? Uh it was a series
0: of things, you know. Uh, first of all, Hal is one of my directors that I, you know, his movies really blew my mind, you know, uh, like th- from The Landlord and, you know, Harold and Maud* and The Last Detail, early Jack Nicholson, you know, and, oh, yeah. and later on c- coming home and being there, which I think is one of the great masterpieces, uh, which is later on. But I had done a movie prior to that, which was sort of my first break having an actual part in the film that had really some consequence in the story, you know, that you were part of, it was called the mean season and it was with uh, Kurt Russell and Marielle Hemingway and Richard Jordan. It's about a serial relationship between a journalist and a serial killer in South Florida. And it just so happens that the two detectives that are investigating was an older uh, Miami cop played by Richard Bradford and a younger Cuban cop that I was, uh, got the opportunity to play. And uh, that movie got me a little bit of, like, a little bit of a wreck, you know. Someone saw me in a movie, basically. So, yeah. <laughs> And within the industry, the casting people saw me. It's a beautiful film uh, made by Philip Borsos and shot by Frank Tidy. And then it got me a little bit of, uh, you know, he can walk and chew gum kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, this Hal Ashby movie, A Million Ways to Die, came out. And I, and my agent said, uh, there's this part in there. There's this part in there about, uh, he's the, the antagonist to Jeff Bridges. And he's a coke dealer, crazy man. He's kills women. You know, he's a nutcase. And, uh, and I read the script and, uh, I said, get me in, get me into it. I know who this guy is. I know who this guy is. And, uh, she tried to get me in, but, uh. Lynn Stallmaster who was one of the most pro the, the most prominent casting director at the time, probably. And basically, you know, my understanding, he said, "Oh no, I, no, I've seen Andy, I've, I've, I've met him, and I've seen him in that movie. He's a wonderful young actor, but he's, you know, he's. We're looking more for like a Hector Macho Camacho kind of character, you know. <laughs> this guy is, you know, Andy's more like a, a diplomat's son, you know. <laughs> but anyway, she, she persisted, she persisted and persisted to please see him and. She finally got me in, and I. So when I went into audition, I knew that I had to be in character because I couldn't walk in like as Andy and then start acting. You know, it was like you couldn't. So I just went in in character, and uh, took a shot, and as though the real guy had walked in because he wanted to be in a movie. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, you know, it's a long story. It's a long story process, but uh, you know, when I met Lynn read for him then he said okay and that's pretty good can you stick around for hal and then hal came in i read for him and that went really well and then they offered me the part uh, that afternoon
1: wow and that's kind of is like your city island character where they're like when they start asking you questions and start start interacting with you that's when you know you're doing good right uh yeah, yeah. no it was it was an interesting thing because I mean,
0: it's. uh, I've told this story before, and and I think it was a Hal Ashby documentary we're doing. But basically, I was smoking at the time, and I went to see Lynn. I started lighting a cigarette, and Lynn said, "I don't. I'm sorry, you don't smoke in here." And and I said, "You know, Angel was the character's name." And I said, "Angel doesn't give a fuck what (laughs) you So that was the first, you know, shot I took, and I said, "Are you going to kick me out, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna establish, you know, the the my rules at this." right here because that's that's who the guy is you know and uh he said okay can i i always remember this he said let's can we go into another room (laughs) and uh uh i said something like uh wherever wherever we're going i've already been and wherever you've been i don't need to go
2: (laughs) so you took your shot
0: yeah, yeah. And then, Lynn, who's a, you know, the loveliest man in the world, he kind of went, OK, OK, let's OK, let's just go in the other room now. <laughs> <laughs> kinda, gu- guiding this kind of like loose, you know, wild Mustang. It's almost like saying, oh, shit, these actors, I got to deal with these actors every day. You know? <laughs> so anyway, we, we, you know, we read and it went well and then we read and then how they like, gave me the part, and then you go. So on. that was, that was a break. Uh, sorry. That, that was a long answer to your question. No, great, that's great. great. That was a break. That was a break because the movie, you know, it wasn't like I was an international success or anything, but I got a lot of notices from that film and uh, you know, a lot of, you know, recognition for it kind of thing. And then Lynn was casting the untouchables. Oh, wow. And so that's where you say, so the breaks are kind of, you know, Boom! Boom! Incremental, in a sense, and then they—they—we uh, got a call that they were interested in me possibly playing the role of Frank Nitti, which was you know Capone's killer,
2: Billy Drago, played by, yeah, Billy Drago,
0: yeah, played it beautifully. And I read the script and I said, oh no no, I want to play this other guy. You know, I told my agent, no, I want to play that young Italian guy. And then I had to go in and convince you know De Palma and Art Linson that you know, why I wanted to play that part. And I said, isn't it obvious, it's called The, it's, it's called the Untouchables. It's not called the Frank Grady story. You know, I want to be, <laughs> be with the guys. I want to be one of the untouchables. That's incredible. But it was a great part. It, it had a, a proper art to it. He was, you know, and not to say the needy part wasn't interesting, but it didn't have the soulfulness. And, the, and I, I just played that killer. I didn't, you know, I wanted to kind of mix it up. And yeah, so you- anyway. That, that, but Lynn supported me, you know, because he because by then, Lynn had known, you know, what kind of person I was, not only as an actor, but on set, as a person, as a responsible member of the acting community kind of thing, you know?
2: Tell us a little about what, working with Sean Connery. I've heard that he was in such a hurry to play golf <laughs> that during that movie being shot that sometimes he had his golf clothes on when he was shooting. Is that true? <laughs> Not, not always, but there was a couple of times where if he was, he was
0: shooting his, he was shooting his close up and, you know, from the waist up, he had his wardrobe
2: and the waist <laughs> down, he had his golf. <laughs> That's great. And a guy like that could get away with it, you know? Oh
0: yeah, absolutely. He was ready to go. Sean is, uh, was incredible. You know, he was of course one of my, you know, childhood her- heroes. And I had only but the most positive, uh, relationship, uh, with him on set and, and, uh, But yeah, he uh, was—he loves golf, you know. And he would come, ready to go, do his thing, and try to get in. You know, it was was during the summer when we started, late summer, so there was still some daylight savings, I guess, maybe, and he can get in (laughs) nine holes at the end of the day or something like that, or, or if he only had half a day's work, you know, he can get in for an afternoon. You know, but he—he loved golf. He played
1: a lot of golf in those days. Do you know when you're making like a? timeless movie like sometimes like that, that just like held the test of time so long
0: yeah uh I did because first of all the script is one of the best scripts I've ever read in terms of you know David Mamet wrote the script and not only it's Mamet and Mamet's dialogue and but his storytelling is so is so uh so beautifully structured this material and I I look at it. Is, there was a very famous Kurosawa movie called uh, The Seven Samurai. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and you know that 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 model of the Seven Samurai has been used a lot in films. You know, which is one guy recruits a bunch of people to go right the wrong. And you could look at the Magnificent Seven. You got the Dirty Dozen, the Untouchables. You know, so Mamet had created this. You know, this, there's there's not a there's not a scene in that movie or in that screenplay, I should say, that is fat. Mm-hmm. Right. So the 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 core of this thing that the movie was going to hang on was so solid in the storytelling. And then with, with Brian De Palma's visionary, stylistic a- approach to, you know, to directing it and the cast they had and Paramount behind it and, you know, and you had... Uh, on one side you had Connery and Costner and Charlie Smith, myself. then you had Robert de Niro as uh, as Al Capone and Billy Drago as Frank nitty and Patty Clarkson as Manessa's wife mm-hmm. and a, and, a, and a and a truckload of great supporting actors. You kind of everywhere you turn, you go like this is gonna be uh this is going has a real shot at being something that's internationally well really well embraced, you know
2: it's perfectly and, cast, just like kind of like Goodfellas. It's just like they got everybody right on that movie, it seemed.
0: Yeah. And then you have Inyo Morricone, who just passed away. May he rest in peace doing the music. You know, it was uh it was quite it was quite a stunning thing actually when we when I first saw the movie put together. We were in New York, we were going we were we were there for press to do that, like the press junket and for the premiere. But we needed to see the movie before. We did the junket because we, you know, people will ask you. So how you like the movie? Well, I haven't seen it. You know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so Brian De Palma took us down in the somewhere. I think it was near the Lower East Side and to a screening room and and we saw the movie and and it was you know I was you know from the opening music
2: and credits it was pretty it was pretty uh extraordinary feeling. That music really sets the tone in the beginning and yeah in, you know for the movie. One of my favorites. Great job on that, Andy.
0: And it holds up really well. I've I've seen it recently in a film festival uh, in uh, Switzerland and uh, with a large audience. And and the movie is just as good today as it was there. I mean, it really holds up well.
2: Absolutely. Well, you talk about golf with Connery. Are you still your home course still Lakeside over there? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's the golf game going? You know.
0: I'm, I'm uh, i i fluctuate depending on what tees uh, I tee off from. <laughs> um, at the moment, from I'm an eight on one set, I'm a nine handicap on the other. Uh, the golf game, and you know, I I post everything. I, I'm you know I I I don't even gamble when I play golf. I play to play against the course, and uh, you know, you can shoot one day eighty six, and then one day your up and down game is happening for me and I can shoot 75. It's been my lowest score. Wow. Uh, but I got to get up and down a lot because I, I, I'm no longer have you know a lot of length. So um, I lay up to most par fours, you know, and I don't hit a lot of greens. but my short game is good enough that on a good day, you know, I can get up and down 11 times and then I'll shoot 76, 77. So you know what I mean? But if not, oh, yeah. then I'm in the 80s and I just – I go, okay, it's one of those games. You can't what putt every green, you know what
1: I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Now, famously, you you won the Pro-Am with Stankowski, and there was a little bit of talk of you guys, you sandbag, and you went in as an 18, right? And then what did no, they... I do?
0: No, I was a 16.
2: 16. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: No, no, <laughs> but you know, I was a 16 at Lakeside, you know. That was my handicap. Yeah. I was still kind of 10 years into the game. You know, playing the game, and uh, but they 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 bumped you because of the uh, slope. They bumped you a couple strokes.
1: Right. So
0: they gave me two extra strokes. But uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, anytime you win anything with a handicap, they're gonna say you sandbag. You could be a two and win. You go. He's not a two. (laughs) So yeah, I got a little bit of that. But luckily, uh, the gentleman that was in my foursome, Doctor D Clark was on the board of the of the tournament and he was in he was in my foursome with uh Furick and him and me and Stankowski. And he, someone brought it up at the board. Hey, it was Garcia really a 16. And he stood up, he says, Yes, he is. Yes he is. I played with him. He picked up on eight holes today. You just pick up the ball because you're you're out of the hole, you know? But he's got a very good short game. So if he can scramble his way around the thing, he can make some putts. And also Stankowski was in the like the top ten. Yeah. Yeah. So we hammed and egged it really well. And but I had I had one nine holes, which is to this day still my best nine holes ever playing at Poppy Hills. We teed off on the back nine and number 10. And we teed off, there was nobody out there. We were the first one, I was like eight o'clock in the morning and we got to the first green part four. I got it on the green. I had like, it was like a peanut shape, like hourglass green that was extremely long. I had like a 60 foot putt for birdie, you know, up and down the hill, left, right. <laughs> and the day before, Paul, I said, you know what? If you are not struggled with your putting a little bit, just lo- loosen your grip, very light grip pressure. So I got over the ball and I said, light grip, light, light grip, light grip. And I hit it and it went in for a net eagle. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh. That's how I started at eight o'clock in the morning. And then I started making putts and making putts and shot even par on my ball. Wow. I had one bogey. I had one bogey. I had a net eagle. I had two bogeys, I think it's two bogeys, breast pars, and one net eagle. But I had strokes on every hole, so I was nine under in nine holes. <laughs> and I got to the first tee, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, "Wow, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of you know, you know, strokes for our team." And uh, I got to the first tee, and it was backed up, you know, because people were teeing off. <laughs> and and VJ Singh was playing behind us, who I've gotten a little friendly with, and he sits down on the bench next to me, waiting for us to tee off. He was going to tee off after us, and he says, "How do you do?" And I said, "Vijay, I don't. This is crazy." I said, "The best golf I've ever played in my life in these nine holes." He says, "I, I can't believe I shot 36," <laughs> and and he he looked at me. He said, "That's what I shot." <laughs>
1: that is awesome.
0: So that so that was you know that got us in you know like got us and then but basically Paul carried us you know I would just. Ham and egged it with him pretty much. And then the last day I, I shot, I think 79 on, on the last day. The Saturday I stunk it up. I didn't get nothing. And the and then the last day I shot 79, which is a, a really good round for me in at Pebble. Wow. And, and then, you know. I You have those days, you know, it happens oh, in golf. Yeah. And by I mean, the way, I was practicing a lot. but Like the week before, I was out there practicing, you know, a lot to try to groove a a sense of a swing, you know, but, and, and it, it just happened to come around that day. And, and since then, I I think I've only made the cut once since 97.
1: Wow. My, yeah. my, my handicap is a lot lower now, which just makes it even harder obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm in the sea flight in our, uh, in our uh, club championship. And I got called a sandbagger as well. I hit a drive 300 yards and then I got like a seven on the hole. I'm like, see, see, that's how it yeah. happens. You know, <laughs> Oh, they don't, see, they don't count those. They don't. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. They, they don't count those.
2: And, and Marky, uh, he has an interesting uh, story where he used to play without shoes. Low center of gravity. Well, he shanks a, on a par three. He shanks it. It hits the rock. And I go, hey, Marky, this one's got a chance. Hole in one in a charity tournament. <laughs> and he gave it all back. He gave the skins all back. Yeah. Yeah, to buy drinks all night which that's a whole other, yeah, thing. other story yeah but uh <laughs> it, it's just a weird game and it's fun it's like a walk in the park that's the way I look at it Andy you know
0: yeah no and you can't it, it's a humbling game but it's a it's it's uh, it's a sublime experience if you uh it's just you against the course uh and it's a beautiful thing I've been fortunate to to go back to that tournament a lot and I was, I was I've also participated in it in a tournament in uh, in Scotland, that's called the Dunhill Links, mm-hmm. which is a pro am over there, uh, professional pro am like the Pebble one, and they placed uh, St Andrews, Carnoustie, and Kings Barnes, wow. and that's, that's a an great incredible weekend. Yeah, that, that's an incredible tournament. I played that six times, never made the cut.
1: Wow. What, what's your favorite course? I just got to go to Augusta. I, w- I went to the masters last year for a practice round it was unbelievable just to walk it. I mean it was fun
0: yeah so- Yeah I played Augusta twice I got invited to play and I and of course that was incredible uh, and I, you know I've got an opportunity to play some of the great courses in the world but I guess Pebble has always has this you know uh, a soft spot for me uh, because of the ocean you know, and the history there, but also how the ocean plays into the golf course. And uh, so I would say Pebble, but, you know, it's hard to say. It's like when you play Augusta, how it's not, not the best golf course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it
1: was like Disneyland.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing, the, that golf course. And, I, you know, I played it twice. I played it uh, the day we got there. I played it, and it was got to Amen Corner oh, and easy. that didn't go that didn't go well.
2: <laughs> uh
0: but then the second day I I played uh Amen Corner even par. So I was putting for birdie on every hole. Oh, wow. Oh, so that you. was their comp. I, I think I shot the second day where I felt like kind of got my bearings a little bit, you know, a little bit. Right. I shot 80 I shot 86, but Amen Corner I par which was that was uh my uh I put a pin in that in my lapel. <laughs>
2: Well, a guy like you can actually have a dream foursome. Who's your dream foursome? Or what's the best foursome you played in? Guys that we know are pros or whatever.
0: Well, you know, playing in those pro-ams, I've had an opportunity to to play with some great modern pros, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that first year we won, we played with Stankowski, who was my partner for many years, and Jim Furyk, I played with Jasper Parnovic a lot, with George Lopez. Uh, he was in those groups. Uh, we tied for first at the Northern Trust with Bill Haas. We lost, the, lost it in a in a card off. But, you know, one of the guys that I, that I played with, which is incredible, was, uh, was Lee Trevino. You know, I got a chance to get to know Lee and played played with him a couple times in a senior pro-am and and became friendly with him and we play sometimes we play here at lakeside he's a good friend of george lopez and he has a charity tournament that lee comes out for uh and to watch lee trevino play golf is really an extraordinary thing because he he works the ball like it, it just, it's just a it's a different thing it's a different thing and i also got a chance to follow sebi maestero's around in the practice round uh, at uh riviera so I would say Sevy would have to be in that dream foursome because I never got a chance to play with him, and he was real one of my early inspirations, you know, in golf. You know,
2: is I uh, does Pashi still have his afternoon tea time at Lakeside? I've heard stories of him. He's off. He's at there. noon. He,
0: yeah, he's there every day. I play with Joe Joe a lot. You know, if I if I'm there around that time, and I'll, I'll play with him. You know, we're good friends. He loves the game. He. And uh, if he's in town, which he usually is during the winter months, uh, he also is at home, I think, in Jersey. Uh, he plays all the time, and he's he's a great, you know, he's, you know, he, he no longer hits the ball a very long way, but he he's a he's a he's a golfer, you know what I mean? And oh yeah. He's got he's got great touch around the greens. He's a great putter. He's got great short game, and he works the ball. He's got to work the ball to get you know, it's a, sort of like a low draw and uh he loves the game you know but once he gets around the green
2: <laughs> he's dangerous oh wow All right, but well you talk about a love of the game we have to do this for our wives and plus we thought it was a great film uh when a man loves a woman
1: yeah when we told our wives we were interviewing you there was only one movie we needed to talk about <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah i know a lot of you know people come up to me and say well oh, i've seen that movie 25 times i'm going that's torturous I mean, that's not a movie, you know, you can't that, that movie if you if you engage in it, it's a rough you know, it's a it's an emotional ride that film like Yeah. To see it that many times, you know.
1: You were working with like, you know, younger actors at the time, and now you go forward and you did the movie Anna with, you know, the younger actors. Yeah. Uh, how how does that, how does that work with young younger uh actors and actresses?
0: Well, uh Daphne Keene, who played this young girl Anna in this little movie we did in Puerto Rico which I guess you can see it now probably like on iTunes or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think it's Anna with just one A right? and A, mm, right? Yeah. Only yeah. She's incredible. She I, I saw her in that movie. Uh, is it X-Men or Wolf? Bo- Logan? Logan. Logan, yeah. And uh, she was incredible to work with. I mean, this, this girl is like her mother, who was her sort of coach, is also an actress and a director. So this girl came, you know, as Daphne came prepared to work she didn't miss a beat there's nothing you needed to tell her you know she came prepared the mother was there obviously they talked she you know they they had broken down this film and she knew exactly what you could improvise with her it didn't matter you there's no way of throwing daphne you know, you can you can go completely off the book and start improvising and she would be right there improvising in character in story it did not matter it's a it's and a great she, picture I had a great I had a great time with her I, you know, it was a beautiful experience to work with a young, you know, young actor like that, and and uh, and share that that ex- that time and that experience. You know, I'm not one that, that people say don't work with children or animals. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of like,
0: I'm sort of like, I feel like totally different. I I want to work with as many children as many animals as possible, because when you have someone, at the end of the day, it's all about taking care of each other, you know, and when your focus is to engage on some with someone else, especially if they're younger, and you then it takes it, it takes takes it out of your own head, you know what I mean, you're in service of the other person. And and acting should be that way it should be taking the performances off each other. It's
1: right.
0: not something you walk in and go like, I'm going to do it like this, no matter what you're doing, you could be standing on your head, and your toes could be on fire. But I'm gonna i I'm gonna play the scene this way, you know. And yeah. that's not the way it works. That's not uh that's why it's better when I talk to you, I can see you because we have we're having an actual conversation as opposed to yeah something. I'm talking I'll bore myself. At least we're here <laughs> we can we can laugh together and you can see me, I can see you, and you know, it, it translates into a real conversation.
1: You were talking about Brando, you got to work with Brando. No, no, I never worked with Brandon. No, no, I didn't work with him. I got to know
0: him a little bit. Uh, I got to know him a little bit. And uh, I was making a movie which I was trying to make a movie which I eventually made called The Lost City, which I also directed about Cuba. And, and I, I was having terrible time trying to get the movie financed. Nobody wanted to help, you know, engage. And it took me 16 years to get it finally made. But Somewhere in that journey, I get this notion. I say, what if I can get Marlon Brando to play my father in it? Maybe that'll be something that will people open the door to an opportunity. And I had met him backstage at a concert after the Godfather and he was very warm hearted and he, he wrote me a beautiful letter when he saw my work. And so I felt like he, you know, he, he knew who I was and he, he, he went out of his way to compliment me and all that stuff. So I said, I'll call him and see what happens. So we start talking on the phone and we talk about all these kind of things, you know. Uh, and he did, you know, there's always the thing about Marlon that he didn't want to talk about acting, you know, that was the last thing he wanted to talk about. But eventually, after like a half an hour conversation about cookies and thing, I start steering <laughs> it over to like steering it over to Cuba and, you know, Cuba. And I understand you went to Cuba and go, yes. And it went on and on. And then I finally said, well, you know, uh, I said, uh, oh, we, the conversations, I knew that he was a percussionist, you know, that he loved playing the congas. And and uh, even when we met the first time backstage at a Tito Puente concert where we met, he would tell me, you know, I could have been professional, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, steer, I steer this conversation back to Cuba, and I finally get the courage to say, you know, Marlon, I'm doing this movie, uh, about Cuba to a Cuban family during the revolution and uh I'd be honored if you would consider uh you know reading the script and to play my father there was a long silence
1: oh, <laughs> and
0: I, said, I, I brought up acting and he hung up on me you know oh wow so I just I just I just kind of held there for a while and you know it seemed like eternity this long pregnant pause and he came back and the first thing he said was, does he play
1: the congas?
0: (laughs) And I go, "Uh, what? He goes, does he play the congas? You know, I could have been a professional, you know. (laughs) And I go, I said, well, Marlon, congas, yeah. I said, well, you know, he's a professor of uh, constitutional law at the University of Havana. But I guess he could play the congas. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, you yeah, know, I could have been a professional. And I go, yes, I know. I know you're good. And then I, in, right away in the back of my mind, I, I said, this is not going to go anywhere. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: he's going to want to be playing the congas in the middle of, you know, his my brother dying or something. You know, he's <laughs> going to turn it into some spoof. Right? So it never went anywhere.
2: But I have the story to tell, which is just as precious, you know, Oh so, Yeah. Well, you talk about that movie, starting a movie with financing and casting, how does this all start? Is it start with the financing and that's the tough part?
0: It starts. Well, you mean like if you're making it like a,
2: your own movie? Though, yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. It's, it starts with a dream. Mm-hmm. It starts with a dream. And then you say, I'd like to do this. And you start to begin the process of how to do it. Or as Sean Connery said in the, the Untouchable. What are you prepared to do?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and that's what it is. What are you prepared to do? Uh, you got to write it or you got to get someone. If it's a piece of material, you got to option it. If it's an original idea, you got to create it or create it with someone or have someone, you know, depending each project would have can take on a different, uh, you know, way of getting there. But first you got to write it uh, and then you got to finance it. Yeah. And unless someone you're so hot that maybe someone comes and says, I want your next picture, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll give you $20 million for your next picture. (laughs) You know, and then you go, well, I want to do a movie where Marlon Brando plays the conga drums. When can you you start? You know, (laughs) there's those situations, but I've never been in one, you know, In, in terms of, uh, as a filmmaker, as a producer of a film where I've, you know, I've started the idea, you know, I'm producing it. I've never had that I've, all the movies that I've find, that I've gotten a chance to make, uh, however the many you know, produced that I started myself or with a partner, an idea or a script that existed that I said, okay, let's try to make this movie, you know. But the script was had no money or anything. Be like City Island when Raymond D. Felita came to me. My agent said, you got to read the script. There's no financing. There's nothing but. It's quite unique and I know you'll like it. I read it I met with Ray, I, we shook hands and I said, let's try to make this movie. But it was just two guys shaking hands, you know right um, there was no yeah. there was no energy behind there was no there was no financier or anything. there was just you know, other producers that wanted to help out and uh, so it just takes that, but it starts with the dream you know and committing to the dream and we will see how then it always takes a long time, you know, uh, it always takes a long time.
2: Well, you talk about a dream. You get a phone call from Francis Ford Coppola to be in The Godfather. A- uh, I think that's not
0: the way it worked
2: out. <laughs> no, no. Tell us about no, it.
0: Francis didn't have my number. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was uh, I was the last person that he met, you know, really. Uh, on it after many, many months of screen testing people and stuff. I was the last person that he screen tested for the film. Uh, I was approached by Frank Mancuso Sr., who was the head of Paramount at the time uh, during internal affairs. I had done several movies for him. His son Frank Mancuso Jr., who's in, really a, a brother from another mother, he's you know both him and Frank Sr. He's a second family to me. And uh, and he came up to the set and he said, "What are you doing in September?" This was like in May, and I had worked with him already on. Uh, I'm the Untouchables, I'm Black Rain, I'm Dead Again. And we now this was doing internal affairs. And he said, uh, What are you doing in September? I want to talk to Francis about you being in The Godfather and playing Vincent. Everybody already knew there was this character named Vincent who was going to be the young guy and possibly take over the family and all that stuff. And he said that to me. And I looked at him, I said, Let me check my schedule. I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll right back to you. <laughs> yeah. So he Gotta started play laughing. The game. Yeah, yeah. No, I said it as a joke, and I said I'd be honored. I'd be honored to imagine. You know, it's the movie that, you know, inspired not only me but a whole generation of actors. You know? And uh, and I was in May, and then I met Francis finally, like in August, in just like a meeting in an office at his office, and then he called me in on a. Thursday morning, I got a call from my agent and said, uh, Francis wants to, wants you to fly up to Napa Valley to screen test, got to get on a plane tonight, went up there with Madeline Stowe, a uh, great actress, screen tested with me in the role of Mary screen tested that morning. They flew me back to, uh, to LA. And the next morning, Saturday, I get a call saying, you got the part, go back, fly up Sunday, back up Sunday and start rehearsal Monday. So it took a long time. It took from, let's say, like May to September. In the meantime, he was seeing actors and auditioning, but there was this thing that if you ever watch the documentaries on the making of the Godfather, that Francis had a real hard time in those days, not with Mr. Mancuso, because that relationship was very good. Uh, Mr. Mancuso is a class act of a person and, but in the early days of Paramount, they always wanted to cast people that Francis did not want in the movie, you know. <laughs> so if you know that history of, you know, that they wanted all these, and I, Francis always wanted Al, Jimmy Khan, Bobby Duval, John Cazale—that was his cast yeah. from the get-go. And they kept throwing in different people. So maybe when they, when they said the studio would like Andy to play it, maybe Francis would have said like, "Oh my God, here we go again," you know. I don't know. I've never asked Francis about that, that situation. Luckily, I also had a friend that knew my work, Fred Roos, which is a casting director and one of his producers, who and Lynn Stahl and uh, not was not involved in that. But Fred knew me and and uh, you know, and I had some work that I could show. It wasn't like Francis could not see my work. He had seen the untouchable when I met him. He did mention he had seen the Untouchables. Uh, and listen, I was blessed to be a part of it. Francis is, was my hero. You know, he's one, one, one of my filmic heroes. You know, I learned so much from him. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And again, got a chance to work with Al, who again was one of my great inspirations as an actor and, and got to uh, play around with him for five months. Oh, that's and great.
1: That was Not a year goes by that we don't sit down at holidays and watch all those movies.
2: Yeah, they st- all three yeah, still hold it, up. Yeah. It, it's hard. It's hard to
0: turn them off when you see them. Yeah, it's like you what if you're if you're laying in the couch going, hey, it's Sunday afternoon, let me see if any sports <laughs> on. And you click, and all of a sudden, one of the Godfather's is on. It's like, <laughs> okay, here we go again. Uh, let's go. <laughs> it's
1: it's,
0: it's, get me a beer. You don't move. You gotta see it from from wherever you pick it up. You gotta see it to the end. You know.
1: I think that's the same way with the oceans movies too. Same, uh-huh. same as it goes. You, you just start watching them, and there it goes the whole day. <laughs> yeah,
2: there you go, there you go. Making those movies, yeah. Andy. I've heard some stories that they tried to be like the Rat Pack at night. Were you involved in any buffoonery with those guys? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> that had to have been a lot of fun making those movies. Yeah, it was a great. It was a great time. It really was.
0: Uh, I had, you know, I had in the, in the second two movies, I worked smaller periods of time, but the first one we were there for a long time, uh, I had more, you know, my character had more, more to do in that story. Uh, but no, I was the outsider, you know, I was the outsider and not, not in terms of the actors I'm saying, you know, in terms of story, the uh, but they had a, yeah, they had a great time together in all three movies, you know, traveling around Europe and all that stuff. And, uh, in the one that they went to Europe, I just worked in a little sequence of with Julia Roberts in like Chicago somewhere, and uh, and then, then the other one was we're back in Vegas at the end again. Uh, I remember talking to George, uh, who uh, said, you know, just casually we we're talking when they were trying to do number number three, and he said. Uh, I said, "How's the script coming?" He's like, "Oh, it's coming along." You know, uh, he said, "Oh, I wish we had you in the movie because your character, everybody wants to know if your character's in the movie." And but you know, uh, you know, I don't, we don't know if, And I, I said to him, "What's the story about?" He kind of gave me, and I said, "Well, what if you run out of money? You got to come from me to finance the operation." <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me and he went, "Yeah, I guess
1: I will do that. That's a good idea." <laughs> so,
0: so that, it's nice when those things you can kind of contribute a little bit to to that energy, you know?
1: Yeah. So in, in Western New York here, uh, they started building like a $50 million soundstage. Uh, they they want to, you know, the architecture here is beautiful. We have a lot of, you know, upstate New York is is great. It's very beautiful, Yeah. very cool place. What would be some advice you'd give Buffalo getting into the movie biz? I think you're doing fine. I have no issues with Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, uh, I think the energy, I mean... It's, I can see the energy of. Uh, I mean, first of all, the Mancuso family, which, uh, like I, said, I told you, Frank Senior and Frank Junior and Maria, the daughter, and their extended—they're all from Buffalo. Okay. So I—I I, I got to know people from Buffalo through the Mancusos, and you couldn't have a more heartwarming, generous, you know, honorable people that I've ever met in my life. You know, uh, you know, Frank Senior is like a like a father to me. Junior's like my brother. I'm um, godson to his his daughter, uh, and they're from Buffalo, Italians from Buffalo. They met each other when they were teenage, young teenagers, and they've been together ever since. And uh, the second, the other guys from Buffalo I know, other than the Mustillo, Lou Mustillo is uh, the Fahy's. I don't know if you know Dennis Fahey. Lawnmower man, and, right? And, and Jeff Fahey, the whole Fahey clan. There's yeah. about 40 brothers. I don't know. It's, <laughs> they keep coming out of it. They come to, you go to the party, he goes, another brother? Where do you come from? You know, <laughs> and sisters. So I got to know a lot of people who are from Buffalo that are, grew up there. And, and uh, you know, you guys are doing just fine. Yeah. There's got to be more people more people should be like you guys, you know?
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> Very blue collar. That's... Yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's about uh, salt of the earth and, you know, uh, you can turn your back on people from Buffalo, you know?
2: Oh yeah. Well, Andy, it's such a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. We're glad that you enjoyed Mark's movie that we did about, uh, Louie Mistel. He's been working really hard on it. And, uh, we hope you keep hitting them straight. Yeah, we hope you come to Buffalo and make a couple flicks too. Yeah, we'll take you out. Well, to... actually,
0: uh, I have a friend of mine, Richard Wank great who did the scalp of the movie with us that uh, I told you about. He's, you know, went on from there. He's one of the most sought after screenwriters. Uh, he did all the, uh, the 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 last two Equalizers for Denzel. He wrote and wrote the Magnificent Seven. I mean, he's a very prolific screenwriter, and he's got a, an idea that he wrote that he that we want to do together. It's more like a series, you know, mm-hmm. that takes place up there in, in in your neck of the woods. Oh, actually.
1: that'd be awesome. It revolves
0: it revolves around the, the Seneca tribe, you know, up there, right? Okay, yeah. 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 So it's upstate New York, Adirondacks, I guess, Buffalo, you know, the border, Canada, around there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you never know. You might see us there. Yeah, come up to Buffalo. You might see us. I'd, I'd, I'd like to do it. It's a really beautifully written piece. But we'll
1: cool. see how it gets, you know. Moves on down the line, as they say. And the work on but, Louis uh, Bartenders too. That sounds that sounds uh-huh. interesting. The work you guys are doing with Louis Bartenders—that'd be great. That
0: would be an interesting thing. I mean, that's a quirkier kind of movie, and more like an art house kind of movie. But, but, uh but I'd like to see if we can crack, you know, kind of shape the, those beautiful monologues you wrote into something that could be also as a film, not only a play. You know,
2: that's great. And you
0: can get. Did you ever see him do it? The, I, the I've seen
2: it. Yeah, they stuck me in when yeah. I was a kid. It, it, yeah. it was great.
0: Yeah. So in the case of the movie, it would be you know it be Lou would play
2: one of the guys, and there'll be another four or five
0: actors playing the other bartenders. But but it's a great, beautifully written piece. I mean, Lou can write. He can really write.
1: Yeah, we take. And, or
0: actually, he just he just talks, and you record him, and you don't have to, <laughs> and, and you don't have to rewrite it. He just talks, and you say okay. We need to polish that, no, it's all good.
1: <laughs> we like to take a lot of advice from Louis. he's, he's great. He, he, he cares, you know, he, spe- he really does. He speaks
0: very highly of you, and like I said, uh, any friend of Louis is a friend of mine.
2: Well, thanks Andy, you come up here, we'll take you out golfing, we'll show you a good time. Bring the orchestra. Oh, don't, don't, get, don't get too carried away. <laughs> <laughs> well, like we do for everybody, Andy Garcia, you are now licensed to talk, thank you very much. Thank you, brother. All the best to you guys. Be safe. Thank you, Godfather.
0: Yeah, man. Good luck to yourselves. Keep it up.